You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great. If you have a Bible, I'd love it if you could turn to Judges, the book of Judges. It's in the Old Testament. We're actually going to be starting a new series called Autonomy. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Autonomy. Um, and this is a bit of an introduction, so there will be a little bit of a ramble, and then, not a ramble, God-inspired speaking, I hope. <laughs> you can let me know at the end. Whereas I really want to give an introduction to how we go, and we're going to be looking at this book. But I guess my first thing, by, by way of introduction as we're looking at the judges, is I believe that this, and it's been so teed up this morning, we're looking at a faithful God. The whole book of Judges, when we come to it, we look at faith. We're not totally sure who wrote the book. We know that the events are true. We know they happened 3,000 years ago. But what we do know is that the God that is being described then is totally relevant for us for today. What happened, uh, if, if you know anything about your Bible, you know that the, the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt They'd been in for 400 years. God sent a deliverer, a guy called Moses. He brings them out after all the plagues. They then literally wander around the desert for 40 years. And his assistant, Joshua, then takes over these guys and takes them into the promised land. That really is the last book. Joshua is the book before Judges. Judges is then the book that covers from that period until a king is established. Now, if you know your Bible as well, you know that actually it's followed by the book of Ruth. And Ruth is almost uh, given a genealogy of how King David was coming. And so you've got to understand the big picture here. There's been a faithful God throughout the whole generations. And this is the passage when the people are in the promised land. And we're going to discover how that goes. The challenge is that God is faithful, but humans aren't. Joshua was one of a generation. If you know anything, you know Joshua went as a spy, and so he was one that trusted God, and he got to, to take them into this land. Now, some of you know your Bible really well. Say, so, oh, there was two. You're absolutely right. Caleb was his assistant, and they went in together. And when the start of the book comes about, you know Joshua is saying, come on, as for me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust God. And the other one is Caleb's daughter. And she says, hey, give me this patch of land. And God says, that is great. I love the fact that you want the land, that you want to inherit it, that you realize it's there to bless you. There are loads of questions as we go through this book. I have read the whole book in preparation for this. And uh, don't do it now, but if you look at the last chapter, you think gruesome. It is a shocking thing. There is a fight for us to inherit all that God has given to us. Now, I think as they came in here, I don't think, and I'll be careful now, I don't think they were getting into ethnic cleansing because actually Rahab the prostitute joined with them, as did the Kenites. I don't think this was an imperialistic conquest because they were not allowed to keep anything or anyone from the land. I believe that this was a spiritual battle. And I think sometimes our danger is that we pull back from things because we think, how will that be perceived? They were asked to go in and to take this land. They were asked to be brave, radical, risk-taking, spiritual people. Tim Keller, I will quote him a lot, whether or not I actually acknowledge it. 
I am quoting him a lot. He says this, it is not our lack of strength that prevents us from enjoying God's blessing or from worshipping God wholeheartedly. It is our lack of faith in his strength. And so the danger is that these fallen people in this book, I mean, Judges is depressing if you don't see God in it. Because what happens with these people is convenience always trumps obedience. And so God says, actually, come on, I want you guys to come in. I'm going to give you this. God says right at the beginning, I give you this land. Come in and take it. But convenience trumps obedience. And so things go worse and worse. In fact, at one stage, they say, I can't. And God says, it's not that you can't, you won't. That's quite blunt, isn't it? Sometimes that's true for us, isn't it? We say, I can't forgive that person for what they've done to me. God says, it's not you can't, but you won't. Sometimes we say, I I can't quite tell the truth here, because if I did, I'd look bad. God says, no, it's not I can't, you won't. Sometimes we think, I can't resist temptation. I keep looking, I keep getting caught in this. I keep going, so God says, not you can't, you won't. So there's a radical, radical challenge. I've got six words that I'm going to skip through, which I think are some of the big pictures that we're going to see over the next few weeks that we're going to be looking at this. The first one is grace. I believe that the book of Judges talks about the people, the God of grace. God relentlessly offers his grace to the people who don't deserve it or seek it or even appreciate it after they've been saved by it. In fact, and in some respects, you may want to start reading a little bit of this because I'm I'm skipping over the first three chapters. Chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 5, they reckon is the introduction to the whole book. I'm going to be covering that this morning. There is a, a place mentioned in there called Gilgah. Well, that was where Joshua met God in Joshua chapter 5. That place means roll. And actually, it was a prophetic picture because God even says, I'm going to roll away your enemies. I'm going to get rid of them for you. It was a grace picture to them. But they still didn't accept it when they went to the land. You see, this book of Judges, and if I ask you, can, can you name a judge? Let's be honest, some of us might say, Samson, Deborah, Gideon, surely. Actually, the book is not about role models. It's about God's abounding grace to people. I would say the grace of God in this book trumps and triumphs the stupid actions of people. What about us? God is merciful and long-suffering. He wants to work in us and through us, despite us. And I think that's what gives me such hope. Otherwise, I look at the book of Judges and I think, man, alive, this is depressing. And then I think, oh, but there's a God of grace. What's the second word that I would bring out of the book of Judges before we even get into it? Lord. Lord. He wants lordship over every area of your life, not just some. That's the theme that comes strong through this. And as we look at it over the weeks, you think, oh, God doesn't want to become an emergency service that you only call when you're in trouble. He doesn't want to suddenly, oh, God, my house is on fire. God, things are hotting up here. Help. No, actually, God wants to be God of everything. 
What he is really challenging the people, and I try not to give the whole story away right at the beginning, is what I call spiritual pluralism or relativism. It's like, oh, there's not one God, but there's lots. It's almost like a mix, a pick and mix approach, a mix and match approach to God. You know, get any three for two kind of approach. And we think, oh, we don't do that. But do we? Is God really Lord of our whole lives? Or do we think, well, I'll take that bit, but I don't want that bit. I, I, I know he wants me to get baptized, but I'm not sure I really want to confess him. As my, you know, I know, cool, you're, you're talking about me signing up for a prayer meeting at three o'clock in the morning. So I didn't mean to look at you, Kwame, but I do think God was saying something. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's something, this whole challenge, isn't there? It's almost like, well, actually, I'll have you, God, but I want my... When do we say he's Lord of everything? The third word that I want to bring out of the book before we look at it is this. Contradiction. You see, I think the Bible is big enough that it copes with contradictions, and sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I want everything simple and working out. So I think there's a tension in the book between grace and law. There's a tension between what I would call conditionality, do this and I will bless you, and unconditionality, I'm going to bless you anyway. And sometimes you can look at it and you think, how does it go? I think there's still a challenge in the church with that today. We get liberalism. God says, I love you, I love you, I love you. And we get conservatism. Do this, do this, do this. How do we balance that? Well, I'll give you a little answer. The answer's in the cross. Because the God of wrath and the God of love meet at the cross through Jesus Christ. But if you really want the answer, you've got to come back and look at the theme throughout the book. The fourth word that I would want to throw out before we look at this is renewal. Renewal. There is a need for continual spiritual renewal in our lives here on earth and a way to make that a reality. Do not pray the prayer and live as you please. Such a challenge, isn't it? I have not run for seven months. You know what I'm saying? And I'm beginning to find the trousers are feeling tighter. I'm sure that we're washing a lot hotter than we used to. You know, you suddenly get to this thing and think, golly, you know what I'm saying? The reality is you stop doing something, it starts having an impact upon you. With being a Christian, we are called to be those that have a sense of ongoing renewal. Christianity is not a once-in-a-lifetime decision. I made a decision in June 1977 to follow Jesus Christ. But actually, there's a sense of following him today and tomorrow, and we read that here. Number five, another word that I want to throw out, a theme that we're going to be looking at in this book. There's only one saviour. It's funny, even in the first chapter, Judah is asked to go up and and set them free because we know out of Judah will come the ultimate saviour, the one who's going to save the world. But all of this must point to the ultimate saviour. There are 12 judges. Some would say 13. You'll find out why there's a disagreement as we go through the series, I'm sure. But if we're really honest, if we think about the men and women that were judges in the book, we've missed the point. Because surely the Bible is saying the ultimate judge is God. And the ultimate deliverer is God. 
And so although they have these people that come along for a season and bring this sense of judgment and deliverance, what they're really trying to do is all point us to God. My final word, we will read the Bible. I do believe the Bible is God's word. Is God is sovereign. God is sovereign. When you look at a book like this, you realize that God reigns. I think that this morning, Abby was stirring us in worship, wasn't she, about a faithful God. And sometimes it's hard to de- declare that. Sometimes you think, God, am I even hanging on by my fingertips any longer? Sometimes when I think of God as the rock, my danger is I think he's one that doesn't hear rather than one of permanence and faithfulness. But actually, we read this book and we realize that God is in charge. It doesn't matter how difficult your situation, it doesn't matter how weak the person, God is in charge. No Christian, I believe, can read this book without realizing how important it is to maintain a close communion with the God who loves his people and demands and deserves their total allegiance. So having laid the introduction... We're going to read Judges chapter 2 and verse 10 to 19. Just the passage that I'm going to look at this morning. Judges chapter 2, verse 10 to 19. After that whole generation, that's the generation that had come out as slaves, that had wandered around the desert and basically died. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. Golly, I find that breathtaking. This was the one that parted the waters and took a million people through on dry land. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? This is the one that had fed a whole nation of over a million people every day. This was the one that had ensured their clothes had not worn out for 40 years. This was the one that had been a pillar of fire to guide them by night and protect them from their enemies by day but they forgot. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baals and Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who'd been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Let's pray. 
Father, I do believe this is your word. I know it was written 3,000 years ago about events, but I believe it's really true for us living in London. God, I can feel like autonomy is one of our key words. We all do as we see right in our own eyes. We know that was a theme of this book. And yet we also recognize that a God of grace is in control. I do pray that you'd speak to us as individuals. I pray that we'll hear. I pray that as a church we'll respond. I pray that we'll be different, God. Let's not just come to your word and, oh, that's interesting, stimulating, boring. Let us come and be changed. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I find this, this to me is a synopsis of the whole book. And so as you can tell, I'm trying to give an overview. This happens repeatedly. The first thing is that they, they knew. Well, the commentators, and I've read lots of them. In fact, you know, I've been reading books all week just to try and think, God, how do I really study and serve you? All of them think they'd actually remembered the facts. They'd remembered about the provision. They had remembered. But actually, they forgot who God was. They forgot who God was. I sometimes think, if I'm brutally honest, do I remember the gospel every day? As a church now, we've been breaking bread, I think it is, is it two years every week. Why? Because it's so easy to forget. It's so easy to know the facts, but to forget the God. It's so easy even with the gospel, isn't it? And, and we can run it off quickly. We can say, well, well I was guilty and, and now I'm considered innocent. I, I, was, shamed, I was shamed, but now I'm set free. I, I was caught under fear, but actually now I'm accepted under love. Do we really know the God who's done that? The beautiful thing of this is God wants us to know him, to be known by him, not just know about him. I found it challenging. Literally, the next generation. If you're a parent here this morning, it's a privilege and a responsibility. How do we raise our kids to want to know about God? But some of us aren't parents. But we still impact those that are around us. How do we stir one another? Seriously, how do you say this? Come on, I'm going to the prayer meeting tonight. Why don't you come? Oh, but it's Sunday night. But come on, we, we could go and meet with God. We could pray and he will hear. Things will happen. Or you could hang around someone and say, oh, come on, let's just sit at home. It's a nice evening. Pims and lemonade on the patio. Where are we going to go on it? Surely we've got to be those that, that make an impact, that remind one another. Because it uses the word that I found quite shocking. They did evil. What was the evil? It wasn't a child molester. The evil was they turned from God. They turned from God. Well, where did they turn to? Well, actually, what we know is they turned to these idols. It was called Baal. Now, we can have the, 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 the idea today. You might think, oh, Pete, idolatry, does that happen today? I think if you turn away from the creator, you're always going to worship the created. And this is what happens here. They were asked... We know in Deuteronomy the commands that says, come on, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. But actually they started looking elsewhere. 
This is the challenge. This is the chain that we find in the book. Commitment is replaced by complacency, and complacency leads to compromise. Commitment, come on, I'm right for you, God. Slips to complacency, I don't know. And complacency ends in compromise. And so they end up compromising with these other gods. I mean, one of the, the gods that they worship was the god of fertility and agriculture. But they lived in a society where basically if you had burthen and crops, you were rich. Because it was that kind of society. I talked enough about this probably last week, not to dwell on it too long. But I think surely one of the idols that we could get caught up in worshipping today is money and possessions. Even the Bible refers to the God of mammon. Now you say, do we really worship it? Well, think about some of the words. We covet. We get greedy, believe in products or satisfy. We toil for a utopia, a perfect holiday, home or meal. Whereas Paul writes to the church in Romans 12 and says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ah, golly, that's quite a challenge. I wonder if the second God is harder. You see, they gave in to religious pluralism. What do I mean by that? Well, the reality was God says, I am God, have no other. Basically, there's one, so he has authority. What they then did is they said, I'll accept these other gods, these other Baals. In fact, they reckon they had Baals for lots of different things. So it wasn't just one. In fact, you can read it there. It says at one time they turned to gods. We like relativism today, don't we? All things are relative. The danger with that is truth becomes relative. So then no one can claim an absolute validity or truth. Therefore, none can shape my behavior or what I must believe. No one can tell me what to do. So under relativism, I become God because I choose the truths that I want. And that was what has happened here. They choose the truths that most fit their needs. What's the other God that I would say they've gone for? They've gone for self individual autonomy, self-expression, self-actualization. That's us, down to a key, isn't it? How many of you have seen the film, Me Before You? You think, what? Well, I guess our whole society, we just sort of celebrate on, it's me before you. What I want, my personal happiness. In fact, now we would even think of sex Not something that you give in a loving, committed relationship, but it's a way of getting self-fulfillment. And if things get in your way, whether they be babies, husbands, or work colleagues, get rid of them. Rebecca Pippitt, she wrote the book Out of the Salt Shaker, she said this, Whatever controls us is really our God. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We don't control ourselves. And then what it describes is what I've called a circle. A circle. The circle starts like this. The people sin. They end up compromising. They follow idols. They forget God. They rebel against God. They become like the people around them. This circle happens 13 times in this book. So what happens when they sin? God gets angry. 
They are then enslaved. And so we see this many times. They're captured. They're handed over. Raiders plunder them. The very people betray God to follow other gods. God's anger is not in opposition to his love, but a demonstration of it. And so because of their sin, God sends them to slavery. So suddenly they get all these people that come and oppose them, that make life so hard and things are so miserable. I have gone for the five S's, yeah, trust me. Supplication. In weakness and distress, they pray and they cry out to God. A bit like the prodigal son. If you know the story in the New Testament, prodigal son grabs everything, goes off, has a great riot of a time, but things go wrong. Ends up eating the pig's food. Then he turns to God. The people are the same. It's almost like things are going really bad. Then I pray. Fascinating, isn't it? I wonder if I did a poll of the week of prayer. How many of us would be there because things are really hard? Or how many would be there because actually we're really in love with God? So easy, isn't it? I guess when things get tough to pray. Look, if you come tonight, I'm not assuming things are tough. We're all going to go. It's a prayer meeting. We pray together. Anna stirred us. But because they cry, God is gracious. God is merciful. So God raises up a judge. These judges didn't wear wigs. They were more likely to carry a sword. They tended to be, uh, uh, I was going to say, aggressive. They led people for a season. You'd have thought the people would think, oh, that is great. But what then tends to happen is the people go silent. When peace and ease come, they forget God. They do their own thing. They no longer love him and worship him. And so in many respects, you see this circle going round and round. They sin, God punishes them, they pray, God sends a saviour, they go silent, things are nice. So then they end up sinning, God sends a slave, you know, they get put into slavery, they get these people come against them, they cry out to God. But the reality is, they're not going in a circle. They're really going like this. Because in every situation, they're getting worse. And sometimes we can kid ourselves and we think, oh, I'm just going around the same. I think, oh, yeah. But actually, the Bible says that when you keep doing this, you're not just going around a circle. Things are getting worse and worse. And so when you read the book, you discover that what they were doing was getting more and more grotesque, more and more disappointing. I'm trying to bring this as a shock to us. The Bible is in your face. The word that I found shocking here was prostitute. Now, you know, if anyone's listening online, they probably wouldn't get this. I was thinking, because I, I, I like to have things visual. I think if English is a second language, it's good to have things visual. I think it's good to have the words up there. I might speak too fast. You might... Yes, I'm now confessing that as a pastor, I typed the word prostitute into Google... Because I thought, well, surely I should help the people. I didn't find a single image that I thought would be presentable in church. I only looked on the first page. I thought, could I do something that would say, oh, golly, why are you doing that in church, Pete? And I thought, I couldn't. I honestly couldn't bring myself to do it. But that's the word that God used. That's quite an offensive image, isn't it? If we're really honest, a prostitute gives themselves without getting pleasure or love in return. They enter into an intense relationship 
with somebody that doesn't really care for them. They become vulnerable, but ultimately are little more than a slave. That's how God says his people are acting towards him. They prostitute themselves with other gods. You're becoming intimate. You're becoming vulnerable. They won't forgive you. They don't love you like I do. This is a theme throughout the Bible. God loves his people. He's betrothed to them. It's a marriage. It's an exclusive relationship. Legal but deep, selfless love. That's the biblical understanding of marriage. You can look it up in Ezekiel 16. You can look it up in Ephesians 5. You can look it up in Revelations 19. And if those sort of verses don't jump out at you, you could read the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet. And God literally said to the prophet, I want you to go and marry this woman. She's a prostitute. Have kids with her. He had three kids with her. She kept running off. In fact, if you read in one of the the passages, he literally brought, paid for his own wife to come back to live with her again. And the people were saying, golly, what is this man of God doing? I mean, how would you feel if I did that? You You can't be a pastor, Peter. I mean, why on earth would you do that? And God says, this is a picture to you of how you treat me. It's it's challenging, isn't it? One of the words used of Baal was literally a husband. And so God was saying, look, by, by marrying this husband, you're committing adultery with me. That's how he felt. It wasn't to, and it, I, I, I know I'm probably bringing it across in the wrong way, and I hope I'm, it's not to make you feel bad, it's to make you feel loved. He's not going to say, oh, you're terrible. It, what he wants to say is, I want you to know my love. I want you to enjoy this marriage relationship. I want us to have this exclusivity. I want you to know that I'm going to forgive you and love you and forgive you and love you. And you run after all these other things. They never do that. They'll only ever enslave you. But I love you. That's why we sing, he's a good, good father. Oh, he's a good, good father. He's he's the best possible husband. That's what the book says. I'll be, I'll be honest, I feel challenged myself this week, and I think, do I run to him and say, I need you, or do I run to food? Or do I run to drown myself in, in books? Do I run to drown myself in an experience? Or do I run to him and say, you're a great, great father? I have a privilege of praying with Chris as many Wednesdays as we're both free. Last week, and we just literally sat there for an hour and said, God, it is just incredible that you... Love us, then we can know you. And that's why it feels about us this morning. And when we get through this book, and, and, and I think, but I'm the person. I, I am these people that go round and round and round and round. And he just says, I love you. <laughs> I'm for you. I'm going to come and fight for you. I want you back. I think there's an amazing passage here. I want to challenge us. I'm just going to skip to the end now, so don't worry about any more slides. This first week that we're just dipping our toe into this book of autonomy, I want to bring the challenge against half-hearted discipleship and living amongst idols. 
I want to bring this challenge. I've been, I've been reading another book this week. I enjoy reading. No, not everyone does. It's called Do It Again, Lord, by Gordon Peaty. And it's about revivals that have happened. I was reading about the revival in America. One guy decides to pray. I mean, the, the, the New York is in such trouble. I mean, it's funny. Now you look, well, I say funny, sad. The banks had run out of money Things had got so bad that the banks were closing. Something like 43 banks went bust. I mean, it was terrible. We think what we've lived through in 10 years. And so what did people do? They thought, I'm going to cry out to God. And literally, they said like 100,000 get saved. And then he was telling the stories about whales. And, and, and it wasn't in multimedia. Nobody knew about it. I mean, something could be happening 10 miles down the road. You didn't know about it in those days. But God did something. And they say, and he came again. And then he was telling the story of Korea. I never realized this. They'd only had the New Testament for 20 years when revival hit Korea. And I say, it's phenomenal. People gave themselves literally day after day to getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning and praying, praying, praying. In the midst of huge difficulty, people repenting of sin, hundreds of thousands coming to know Jesus Christ, churches packed, societies changed, birthed out of prayer. Why? Because each generation must remember God for themselves. And that's our challenge, I think, as we look at this. How do we forget ourselves and come to know him? Have you forgotten how good God is? Have you become half-hearted? Has your commitment slipped to complacency and compromise? Or are you still saying, actually, you are my God and I will worship only you?